Good afternoon. <clears throat> Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm up here only for a moment to introduce our distinguished moderator and then turn the program over to him. Uh, the program today will be moderated by the author of the book that we're discussing, Climate Coup. Uh, Pat Michaels is one of America's most published and most distinguished climatologists. He's senior fellow in environmental studies here at the Cato Institute. He's also a distinguished senior fellow in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University. He is a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists. He's published in all the major relevant scientific journals, and he was author of the 2004 Climate Paper of the Year, awarded by the Association of American Geographers. He has authored or co-authored a number of books on climate change, including Meltdown, the Predictable Distortion of Global Warming by Scientists, Politicians, and the Media, and Climate of Extremes, Global Warming Science They Don't Want You to Know. And today, he is the editor of Climate Coup, Global Warming's Invasion of Our Government and Our Lives. Please welcome Pat Michaels. Thank you. Thank you, David. <clears throat> Uh, before we go on, I would like to introduce uh, our two commentators, and uh, they are, on my left, Robert T. Ryan, fellow of the American Meteorological Society, and he holds the Charles Franklin Brooks Award from the Society for Outstanding Service. He's known here in Washington as Bob Ryan, uh, the meteorologist for WJLA7. Uh, in 1993, he was elected president of the American Meteorological Society. Uh, he has also served as the chair of the Society of the Committee on Broadcast Meteorology, the Commissioner of Professional Affairs for the Council of the so Society, yes. Uh, and he is the uh, chair of the AMS De Development Committee and most recently held an AMS presidential forum on the communication of weather and climate information. I think you will discover that Bob Ryan is not just a weatherman, if you don't mind that. Uh, he is an extremely good communicator uh, on the subjects of weather and climate. Uh, and as an example, yesterday he testified in front of the Senate, what, what, what committee was it? Commerce Committee. Commerce Committee on uh, <clears throat> if we are effectively communicating severe weather uh, in light of the last tornado outbreak. And on his left is Richard Lindzen, Dick S. Lindzen. Um, he is a Sloan, Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology at MIT. He's produced groundbreaking research on the sensitivity of temperature to changes in carbon dioxide. He's recipient of the American Meteorological Society's Meisinger and Charney Awards and the McElwain Award from the American Geophysical Union. These are three of the most prestigious prizes in atmospheric science. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a fellow of the American Association of Science for the Advancement of Science and the American Geophysical Union and the American Meteorological Society. He holds a corresponding member to the National Academy of Sciences uh, on Committee on Human Rights. Uh, Dr. Lindzen holds ABSM and PhD degrees from Harvard University. And I am me, and if we could turn down the lights, I will talk for a very few minutes about this book. Uh, there we go. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this is only up here to tell you to buy this book. Uh, <coughs> But the thesis of the book is that there has been a massive invasion of global warming policy into our government uh, and into our lives. 
And I'll give you an example of some of this from a potential point of view. Uh, on June 26, 2009, uh, the Waxman-Markey bill passed the House of Representatives. It squeaked by by three votes. And it would reduce emissions 3% below 2005 levels by 2012, 16 by 2020, 42 by 2030, and 83 by 2050. Now, this seems benign, I guess, until you realize what this means to your life. These are U.S. per capita carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and uh, over here uh, is year. This is where it was in 2005. We've had a decline in per capita emissions in part uh, in recent years because of the discovery of shale gas. Uh, and by the year 2050, you will be allowed the per capita emissions of the average American in 1867. Now, that will require some intrusion in your life. Uh, what will it do? This is the amount of warming. This is using the United Nations uh, 2.5 degree sensitivity model for doubled carbon dioxide. We could debate about this a lot, but that would be a different subject. Uh, if every nation of the world does what it's doing now and continues on the emissions pathways that they are on, uh, the planet would warm 1.58 degrees between 1990 and 2050. If Waxman-Markey were, in, were in the U.S. at 2050 levels, beginning immediately, uh, the amount of warming would be 1.54 degrees, or four hundredths of a degree would be saved. Now, if all the nations that had obligations under the Kyoto Protocol immediately fulfilled the 83 percent reduction of Waxman-Markey, the amount of warming that would be prevented by 2050 is a grand total of 8 hundredths of a degree C. It's, it's an amount that's too small to measure. So you has, have to ask yourself, why is there such large involvement of this process in our lives, especially when we are so profoundly irrelevant? Here, is the, the, here are the carbon dioxide emissions per year in million metric tons, uh, and we are blue. This is the United States. In 2006, United, China passed the United States in emissions. Ours are actually going down. That's for two reasons. One, our economy is going down. Two, shale gas is displacing coal uh, for electrical generation. Shale gas, uh, natural gas produces, depending upon how you cut it, maybe about 70 percent of the carbon dioxide emissions of coal per unit energy. <clears throat> and in China, coal is going up dramatically. Right now, as we speak, China's emissions are 42 percent greater per year than are ours. So if we cut our emissions by 40 percent, China would make that up immediately. It's not a very pretty picture. Now, what happened when this was passed, by the way, the Waxman-Markey bill, it passed on June 26, 2009. Have any of you look at Rasmussen's presidential tracking approval index. It's the strongly agree with what he's doing versus strongly disagree. When it's negative, that's bad. The index is a three-day moving average. And on June 29th, the first day that he could have three days of Waxman-Markey data in it, his index went from positive to negative, And it has never been positive one day since. Now, I assure you that the Senate staffers look at that every morning. And they probably went to the boss on Monday morning, the 29th, and said, uh, <clears throat> the President's approval rating just went negative. 
I suggest you act like you're going to pass cap and trade and then somehow kind of find an excuse to not do it. And that's precisely what happened. And so what has happened is it has gone from Congress to the Environmental Protection Agency. And that gets us closer to the subject matter in this book. You see, the Supreme Court ordered the EPA in Mass v. EPA to determine whether or not carbon dioxide was a, quote, pollutant, meaning something that harms health and welfare, human health and welfare. And if it did, it must therefore regulate it to the point that it no longer harms human health and welfare. Well, this question got before the Bush administration, and they said, well, we're not going to make a report on this, or we don't think we have the information for this. Well, I assure you the Obama administration did, uh, and they found an endangerment, as they say. The key phrase in the endangerment, most of the observed increase in global average temperatures since the mid-20th century is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic greenhouse gas concentrations. And herein lies some of the subject matter of this book. This was based largely upon a document called the Report of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. Uh, I cannot find a paragraph in this report that is not missing something from the scientific literature that would alter dramatically the conclusion that was made on the basis of that paragraph. And right now I have undertaken a Cato project to produce that report, something that will look exactly like it, paragraph for paragraph, with what was missing. It's a lot of fun, and it's really easy. Anyway, <clears throat> why does this happen? Well, science is a publicly funded entity. Public science is public choice. If you want to see how public choice is intruding upon science, I offer you the following. Uh, here is uh, Eisenhower's statement in his farewell speech. Everybody knows this statement. Uh, in the councils of government, we guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power will persist. Few people read the next paragraph. Operative part, holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become a captive of a scientific technological elite, which is where we are today. Now, examples of public choice science. Anybody recognize this building? This is the head of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's on New York Avenue, not very far from here. Do you think it's here because they like hot summers? No. It's here because they are the lobby for scientists, and what lobbyists do is they get money. And the way to get money is to at least show some support for your pet programs. So three summers ago, I could not get the exact banner, but this is very close. Hanging from the 12th Street side of the American Association for the Advancement of Science was the following banner. Now, we're not mixing our science with our politics or anything like that. Uh, anyway, it started a long time ago. Vannevar Bush was written to by President Roosevelt in 1944. Uh, the, the president recognized the success of the Manhattan Project and proposed that the Manhattan Project be institutionalized. Um, we are going to apply the existing scientific research to the solution of technological problems paramount in war. However, there is no reason why these lessons to be found in this experiment cannot be profitably employed in times of peace. The information techniques and research experience developed by the 
Office of Strategic Scientific Research and Development, which oversaw the Manhattan Project, should be used in the days of peace ahead for the creation of new enterprises bringing new jobs and the betterment of the national standard of living. Hmm. Sounds like green jobs to me. And as a result of this, we will create a fuller and more fruitful employment and a fuller and more fruitful life. What goes around comes around. Well, as a result, the National Science Foundation was founded. And then when the various agencies decided that they did not have enough programmatic science within the National Science Foundation, they developed their own science programs. And that is all publicly funded. Nobody gets funding for anything in the scientific world by going in front of Congress and saying, my area is not important. So what we have done here is we have created a culture of scientific exaggeration. And for want of a better thing, some people know what this is. This is the State Science Institute from the movie Atlas Shrugged, uh, which Judge Reardon meddled to be a dangerous, dangerous thing. So now we have to discuss whether, in fact, this intrusion of global warming into government is A, large, B, if it is large, is that good, or B, should, C, should not be, and if it is not, is that good or bad? And I leave that charge first to Bob Ryan from WJLA. <laughs> Thank you for setting me up. Let me, uh, let me bring up my, I'll get out of here. Is that you? Yeah. That's me, I think. I'm going to bring, I, I think mine is up. We have a, do we have a expert on this? I don't, I don't use PowerPoint on television, by the way, <laughs> although I have where do we bring up the other one? There we go. Yeah, just, ah, yeah. When all else fails. There you go. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, the, the usual disclaimers, and I will... Hit that right there. Oh, I was going to start from the beginning. This. No, that... Oh, let me just... My people that turn on my microphones and everything. First of all, the usual disclaimer, now you can put the timer on, that uh, this is certainly my personal opinion, and, and I am not Pat, going to get a lot into the policy uh, and the politics, even though it is Washington, but I, I thought I would uh, really try and focus a bit on to the science and the communication, because ultimately that's how we're all in this together for decision. Science is organized knowledge, wisdom is organized life, and which do we use and which do we choose in making a, a shared decision, if you will. And when Pat first invited me, I thought he said I was going to talk about the climate coupe, which is, uh, as we can see, is behind us there at the bottom is, of course, the Earth. The white part is the atmosphere. Uh, that's the uh, stratosphere. And those are the cosmic rays which are coming into the stratosphere generating the clouds. Um, which has been another uh, issue of science, <clears throat> obviously. I, I must say, in, uh, in background, I did begin life as a, uh, as a cloud, in cloud physics before I stumbled into broadcasting. So climate uh, coup, and uh, I went into the uh, table of context, a lot of interesting and uh, provocative things. Uh, these were some of the things, global warming, hot peer review, environmental threats, climate change, human well-being, education. I said, there's nothing to disagree about uh, those areas, those subjects. 
And in, uh, in full disclosure, I was mentioned in the ClimateGate papers. And here is how I was, uh, got into, uh, it was one of the proudest moments of my professional career, actually, when, I, <clears throat> when it happened. And uh, I did uh, write a note uh, as, uh, uh, to Rick Anthes, who was then uh, the AMS president, about these dueling press releases. Uh, NASA at the time, I think, uh, said that uh, 2005, I uh, forget, had been the warmest year. And then NOAA came out and said NOAA was only fifth. And are we really serving um, the people and informing people by having the science by press release? And that's something that we have here in Washington, obviously. And uh, you know, I would say, um, no, we really don't. And it's all of us are involved in making the decision. So let's think about whether is the weather uh, changing? Is the climate changing? Is there a human footprint? And is global warming, as Pat has uh, pointed out, intruding into our lives? Yes, it is. Uh, and I would use this as uh, uh, Charles Krutenheimer has written a number of uh, certainly very provocative uh, columns. And I don't like you know, this idea of skeptic, non-skeptic, denialist, uh, all of these extremes. But uh, I think he put it uh, in a good framework from the perspective and economics. Uh, and it is, what is my agenda? I've written a, a column on what's my agenda. Global warming agnostic. Every scientist is a skeptic or should be. Is the weather changing? Are we having a human footprint on our weather? Well, from space, we can see uh, a day in France when the forecast was uh, mostly sunny. And, because of uh, contrails and high-flying aircraft, or unless that was cosmic rays all coming together at the same time, it was mostly cloudy. And here's uh, a good record. And yes, there is variability. And I like to point this out because it does include uh, the error bars. And we know as science and within science, <clears throat> nothing is deterministic, especially in the weather and climate. But it does show a trend. And I think it's from NCDC. And it's a reasonable trend. Here's one that I just brought up. This is uh, the reanalysis for last year's global temperatures. And indeed, Florida was a bit cooler than average. But also, I think what's interesting to point up about this is the anomalies based on, obviously, uh, uh, uncertainty and uh, variable measurements. But in history, and when we think about uh, the research that has gone on into the global change, and really, uh, I think narrowing it down to global warming, and it's about global change, Warren Washington, um, winner of the Presidential Me uh, Medal of Science, longtime researcher in uh, climate modeling, trying to understand these. Back in some of the very early crude models of the 60s, showed that some of the uh, greatest anomalies, even at that time in, in these very crude models, were likely to take place in the higher latitudes. Lo and behold, what are the observations? Sometimes the observations do have some merit. Uh, this was a part of a AAAS panel that I was on by a, a news, uh, uh, some research on how do news directors look at the information that they're communicating and uh, how do they feel the stations, is it appropriate for my TV weathercasters to discuss climate? Most agree. What are the sources that they turn to for information? They're pretty much across the board of the uh, different scientific organizations, including uh, state climatologists. This is a uh, cause for, uh, for great uh, joy that the politicians are ranked last as being a, a trust for climate change science uh, sources. Um, and yet, uh, we find in that same survey that uh, this idea of a scam uh, was resonant with many uh, TV weathercasters, and of course, uh, John Coleman as uh, uh, suing Al Gore. And this is uh, uh, Dan Siderfield, who has traveled to Greenland and writes a blog on AG. Why is that? Why do TV weathercasters 
are so uh, uh, agnostic, let's say. Well, they say, we can't even forecast the weather beyond seven days. How can we forecast the weather? And in all fairness, about half of the uh, broadcasters that are call themselves meteorologists uh, are not even, don't even have a degree in, uh, in uh, science. So we are having a profession represent science and our science and my science, which doesn't have the background, but I am not a meteorologist, but I play one on television. And unfortunately, the average person's contact with science day in and day out is the TV weathercast and is the uh, weathercaster. And this was another slide I grabbed. We're dealing with two types of systems in modeling and so-called forecasting. Ed Lorenz, uh, the great um, meteorologist uh, from MIT, uh, the chaos theory, but we're dealing with two models, so-called. One is a determinant, uh, they all are deterministic in to some extent, short term. And I think Chris Mooney does make some important points about the communication, this idea of scientism. And so many scientists feel that if the public doesn't understand what I'm talking about, it must be their fault. How are climate scientists communicating and fairly communicating the uncertainty that we know is inherent in the climate system? Here was the <clears throat> uh, recent report from Gavin Schmidt and uh, Jim Hansen at, uh, at uh, uh, Goddard versus this uh, essentially a same measurement and sh showing the uncertainty and fairly communicating what we're doing. And uh, here again, we had some dueling uh, press releases, what I'm frankly not a big fan of. And the statement, the two years differed by, uh, now we're down to thousandths of a degree measured globally with a uh, point by point uh, graph. Is that a fair way of communicating and especially, as Pat mentioned, uh, when we're using words like very likely, likely, this is one of the few references I found. And there have been a couple of others done in the social sciences about how we communicate and what words mean. And look at the uh, range of possible with the uh, everywhere from the, av the average person thinking that means about a 10% probability to a 60 to 70% probability. And I would never use the term, but the one that has, you can see, the narrowest spread is toss-up. A coin flip, 50-50. Here's a better way. This is, uh, again, from the UK Met Office of their uh, uh, decadal um, uh, predictions. And indeed, we've seen uh, that uh, effects like Mount Pinatubo have a cooling effect. There are a lot of natural drivers going on. And in their, um, which is a uh, decadal prediction system, they take account to uh, what's happening recently in the atmosphere. And Pat is, uh, I'm sure, very happy to see this, which is their very late, whoops, sorry, let me go back, their very latest outlook, which is uh, sort of up until uh, 2020, um, having a general uh, set, a steady state. So a lot of things are going on and driving the system. The, the one that I, I, I think that this is Jerry Meal uh, and Warren Washington again, looking back at uh, starting out in the 50s, and what would the models have shown? And uh, beginning in the 60s, and uh, I know still a friend of uh, Dick Linson, Kerry Emanuel, has uh, pointed out in a, in a talk that the reason that these models are showing the beginnings, or at least the footprints of, uh, of the uh, anthropogenic uh, process, is the Clean Air Act, when the aerosols were uh, removed. And uh, one of um, uh, Dick's uh, uh, alma mater, uh, not alma mater, but where you are now, this Joint Program of Science, Policy, and Global Change. There was the, uh, the gr famous greenhouse gamble 2002. Here was the latest one six years uh, later of the probability uh, going out to, I think it's 2010, for 
six to uh, greater than seven degrees Celsius, and this is using the same colors. How could this happen? Why did this happen? What was being used to make such a dramatic change in the probability of that uh, program, the joint program of science and the policy? Well, the atmosphere models climate sensitivity can be changed by varying the cloud feedback. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> as starting life as a cloud physicist, that indeed, as Pat has pointed out and others, is a bit of the wild card. The aerosols, what will a globally changed, a warmer world, what will be the cloud structure? And I don't think anybody has the answer to that. So putting out models that uh, I'm just wrapping up, uh, uh, that uh, say we can vary the, uh, what the uh, projection is by varying the cloud uh, feedback is a little bit, uh, I think, of handmade. I think it's important that as we go forward, and all of us as a shared scientific uh, uh, enterprise, trying to help people make the best decision and trying to make it a cooperative process that we fairly communicate what we know and what we don't know, as well as a certitude of what we don't know. So uh, with that in mind, I'll wrap up with the uh, Pats and also draw your attention to another book, which I think is really, really worth a, a read. Roger Pilkey, who's also touched on a very important area of policy and also the solid science. And uh, Roger's Iron Law of Climate Policy, and for those of you who have not read the book, I would say after uh, Pat's book, read that. And here is his Iron Law of Climate Policy. When policies on emission reductions collide with policies focused on economic growth, economic growth will win out every time, as we're seeing in India and China. The question is, going forward, what if um, some of the points Pat makes and Dick will make, what if we're wrong? What? Me worry? I think we have to say that in, no matter what the science is saying and what uh, uh, the extreme maybe positions will be, what if we are wrong? And this is a uh, finish up with a, a slide from uh, Ben Sauter. The problem is, is that we don't have two Earths. We are undertaking, some would argue, one of the greatest uh, experiments in humankind in what we're doing to the atmosphere and changing the chemistry of the atmosphere, changing the chemistry of the ocean. What if we're wrong? We don't have two Earths to control experiments on. Thanks. Okay, well, I think Bob illustrated certain things that I'd like to ask to speak to a little bit. I'll come to the topic of the book, which is mainly related to the influence of this issue on every aspect of life. But I'd also like to start with explaining why I have problems with this subject and the way it's presented. And I think Bob illustrated some of this. Uh, from over the last 20 years or longer, I've looked at this issue, and I find people focusing on the temperature record and arguing, as he says, dueling scientists, is this the peak year? Is this, and it differs by 0.05 degrees. And this is stupid. I mean, there's no question. What's the purpose of that argument? And I've personally reached the conclusion it is to obscure the issue. Um, 
In the book, Climate Coup, Justice Stevens is quoted. A well-documented rise in global temperatures has coincided with a significant increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Respected scientists believe the two trends are related. And this was enough for the Supreme Court to legislate that this was a danger to human health and welfare. This makes no sense. The IPC statement, see, statement that Bob mentioned, man's emissions are likely responsible for most warming in the past 50 years, you have to understand something about it. That's treated as the main statement, but it isn't. There's nothing alarming in that statement. That statement is completely compatible with there being no problem at all. So the question is, what would be a better statement? Because as Bob pointed out, you, you can show simulations of the leveling off the temperature, you can do all those things. You can get models all to agree with what happened in the last 50 years. The claim of the IPCC is they couldn't do it without man's impact. That's a phony issue. Lots of people have been able to do it with Pacific Decadal Oscillation, Atlantic Multidecadal. But let's go back to that statement a little bit more. How could it be rephrased to make clearer what has happened, since it is the models that are the basis for alarm? Well, you could equally accurately say that man's emissions have caused two to five times the warming of the past 50 years with some unknown factor euphemistically referred to as aerosols canceling the discrepancy. Now, I say unknown factor for a very simple reason, as Jeff Keel at NCAR points out, as Steve Schwartz, Rhoda, all the aerosol people point out, every model uses a different correction for aerosols in order to come to fit and disguise the fact that they're predicting vastly more warming than we've seen. You know, you often hear the issue of doubling CO2, the IPCC numbers for the anthropogenic contribution to the infrared, the greenhouse effect, are already 80% of a doubling of CO2. So the statement, as I've rephrased it, is hardly as compelling as Justice Stevens thinks it is. Uh, why is it that the issue is presented in a way that disguises that? And that has been one of the things that leaves me suspicious. The issue of the temperature record itself, you know, has it gone up, has it gone down, is it a peak, disguises, if you think about it a little, the fact that the temperature change has been small. I hate to waste 12 minutes on a joke, but there's an old joke in the Middle East uh, about in the time of the Ottoman Sultan there was a jester, Jufar, and he constantly was entering the border of Jerusalem with his donkey, and it was packed, and the guards were always looking for what he was smuggling, and they never found anything. Years later, the sheriff of Jerusalem is dining with Jufar and says, I know you were smuggling. What were you smuggling? And the answer is, I was smuggling donkeys. <laughs> uh, you know, we get a little bit sillier 
Uh, Kevin Trenberth has recently decided that the null hypothesis in climate should be that man is causing catastrophic change, and anyone who doubts this should have to prove it. Um, what can I say? It is a subject that has been misrepresented. It's presented as though it's concrete, and when they ask for agreement, the agreement is always on the trivial issues where everyone does agree. No one argues that climate doesn't change. Nobody argues that man won't have some effect. In science, the question is always how much, and that's treated as a peripheral issue once you've established the trivial. Okay, uh, Pat's, the book Pat had edited, Climate Coup, talks about publication blockage. Everyone in this field knows about this. Um, the techniques are bizarre. Uh, the idea is you delay and delay publication. You can check on sometimes in blogs if rumor gets out that a paper is coming, there are a deluge of letters and pressure on the editors. It's a shame and a disaster. Nevertheless, things do get published, and we're beginning to see a movement that's akin to sort of samizdat, or, but not exact. So for instance, uh, there's a meteorologist, a very good one, at NOAA in Boulder, a fellow named Sardishmuk. And he recently published a couple of papers which did not look subversive to the agenda. And then he emails everyone to explain why it is. And so the email says, we have recently published two papers, linked below, that give one some pause concerning the ability of current climate models to represent climate changes on scales, et cetera. Briefly, they show that even in a radiatively warming world, in order to get climate change right, one has to get tropical SST changes right. And two climate models are not getting the tropical SST changes right. The results are clear. The conclusions seem inescapable. And then he goes on to explain he doesn't think this is a resolution issue either. And we both know that. Um, I've been trying for years to get modelers to test whether their ocean behavior and SST behavior improves if they artificially decrease sensitivity. Not a single modeling group, all of which are supported by the government, has the time to test anything. They're all doing tests for the IPCC, comparison runs. Okay, now, there is one issue I have with the book, and it's semantic. It's called Climate Coup. And that emphasizes, of course, something that, in a way, I don't think Pat even thinks, that this is orchestrated. And to some small extent it is, but in order to be effective, there had to be a receptiveness to it. And over 20 years ago, in Cato's Regulation magazine, I published a piece pointing out, to my surprise, that every player in this game, including the coal industry, figured out how to make money on this issue and was supporting it. And that suggested to me that the only people who are likely to pay are the public at large, the consumer. And 
it's for them that you have propaganda. And this represented a societal instability, which I think we're beginning to see finally take off a little. It's amazing it took this long, but I'll speak to that briefly. Uh, the degree to which people will go to change, to take advantage of this issue, to my surprise was, I think, nicely ensconced in chapter four by Ivan Eland. I don't know if that's the pronunciation. And global warming is a security issue. And the reason I, I like that chapter is the absurdity of it. Um, here you had the military. They're looking to replace the Cold War with something to justify the budgets. And absolutely no sense of shame. Anything they see in global warming will add to it. And, and that's been characteristic of this issue. In many ways, it was a gate opening for junk science. Um, the business of co-optation of things goes further. Uh, one of the things that we see regularly in this field is anyone who becomes vocally enthusiastic at a high level for global warming alarm is rewarded immediately. Uh, for over, well, 25 years, there was a temporary nominating group at the Academy of Sciences solely devoted to finding a backdoor entry for such people to the Academy. Uh, 25 years is a long time for a temporary group. It's now been replaced by the section on the human environment that now can elect its own members. Uh, you should understand with the National Academy, there is an interesting twist. No matter which group elects you, you are permitted to join any group you wish. And to elect a member, you need at least 80% agreement of each section. So if you can get 10% into a section, you have a veto power over any further elections. That's been an interesting device. In some ways, it should be trivial. But you know, Napoleon understood the value of honorifics. Uh, there's something some of you may know, the Académie Française. And this is for distinguished intellectuals in France. It's from, I think, before Louis XIV. I think it might be Henri Cotte. And uh, the revolution ended it. They uh, disbanded the Academy. The first thing, almost, that Napoleon did when he took over, even before he was emperor, head of the directorate, was to reestablish the academy. Why? He was open about it. He said, why would you give up such an important way of influencing these people? And uh, he was right. Well, we're coming to an issue that's been around for over 20 years now, actually 30, because you'd have to go back to Bellagio and Villoc, these meetings at which it was laid out that this was to be a primary issue of the environmental movement. Uh, it was decided then that you couldn't spring it on the public until you had an event. As Bob knows, the event has nothing to do with climate. It was the hot summer of 88. Um, for, if I ask people, you know, how long has this issue been around? Most people are answering three, four years. And yet since 1988, Newsweek, Time, New York Times, 
have had several articles a week and reporters on this beat. I think what we're seeing now is a doubling down, a desperation. I think it's recognized by now that many, many professional societies, which have nothing to do with climate, have committed themselves to the issue. Many scientists have committed themselves to the issue publicly while trying to do science that actually counters it. Uh, if at this point the issue collapses, the consequences for science, at least institutional science, will be dramatic. And so you are caught, so to speak, between the devil and the deep blue sea. On the one hand, you know that this is disastrous for the science, forget the world at large. On the other hand, you know it's disastrous for you if it doesn't continue. And that's where we're at at this point. Thank you. We'll give each speaker five minutes to respond to the sure. other speaker's comments. And you can do it either from here or from up there. Um, well, from here. Um, is the National Academy perfect? No. Did not elect uh, Carl Sagan as a member of the National Academy. Science and science and those science who communicate publicly and uh, are well-informed do not necessarily all get elected to the National Academy. Is uh, ClimateGate a sign of uh, a conspiracy or is it more a sign that scientists have the human frailties that we all have? I would say Many of the things that came out of there, I don't think anybody is particularly proud of. Did it uh, disprove or was there alarming? Uh, I know the tricks uh, that is always cited. And uh, uh, when, um, when springtime comes, we can all go out and uh, pick some cherries. But you know, the overall message and the overall uh, message of those, and I am certainly not a climate scientist, uh, as, or as Pat, is that uh, uh, science is, uh, you know, is a morally solid uh, profession, I think. I started life as a scientist uh, before even the ozone hole was, became a, a big issue. And uh, the funding that went on then was directed in other areas. I got funding. Uh, there was a Vietnam War was going on. And there were different, uh, uh, different yes, governments uh, has been always the prime funder of, of research. There was a program uh, years ago called Research to National Needs. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, boy, there were a lot of proposals that came in once that program uh, was brought up. It had nothing to do with, uh, with uh, the so-called global warming and not much to do with atmosphere. Excuse me, the largest RAND grant went to the University of Wisconsin to establish the Institute for Environmental Studies. Well, it wasn't the Institute for Global Warming Research, Pat. It was the Institute for Global Cooling Research. Well, uh, Reed Bryson. Uh, um, I was there. Uh, uh, was uh, was uh, heading that up, I think. So, anyhow, um, the you know, these 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 issues uh, um, indeed are issues that uh, we have to, I think, fairly communicate to the public. And in point of fact. Um, the, because of, uh, I think, uh, a variety of opinions and, and confusion, the public uh, belief and public support for uh, that the global warming is, quote, an alarmist issue or anything is a, is a major, major issue is decreasing. 
So it is not increasing in spite of uh, what some would view as a conspiracy among journalists and uh, New York Times and Andy uh, Revlin and so forth to, uh, to make this alarmism. I, alarm to me is, is a little bit extreme as, uh, as well as uh, just uh, let's neglect it and it will all go away. Again, uh, 50 to 100 years from now, we may be placed in a different position of having to make different decisions. And uh, we don't have two Earths to see which, uh, which turns out correct uh, in uh, 50 to 100 years. So the idea that there is this global conspiracy and global cabal of scientists all trying to uh, change the way we live our life, I think, is a little bit extreme also. That's very good. Um, <clears throat> I'll be happy to ask you in the Q&A how in the world you reduce emissions 83 percent right now. Okay. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you, Bob, on uh, the business of a conspiracy. And that's what I tried to point out, that uh, conspiracies involving thousands of people don't work. Uh, rather, they have to involve rather few people and an issue where everyone of their own self-interest will go along. Um, as far as science and its integrity goes, one has to distinguish science from institutions. Institutions have interests. Uh, science has its own means, which over long periods of time will emerge. Institutions are corruptible. Um, the business of words being important is terribly true. But in talking about error bars and so on, how many people have the faintest idea where the global mean temperature anomaly is? So, you know, you don't even define the basic words in this issue. That's just called climate. It doesn't correlate well with climate in some other sense. So I think, you know, that is one of the things, one of the points I emphasized is science, in fact, does have a large measure of agreement. And even the IPCC statement, which I believe is wrong, does not project alarm. And the public is led to believe that the main issue of how much and what its relation is to any of these catastrophes, which is very tenuous, are secondary issues. Once you establish that nature exists. That's not very satisfying that a community will run that argument. That is not helping communicating to the public what is the essence of the issue. It's rather designed to have them argue about hundredths of a degree and so on and let the main issue go by. Now, Pat brought up something, and it's terribly, what, what if we're wrong? What if, indeed, all these catastrophes that have multiple causes turn out to actually be due to global warming. I brought that up. Yeah. Well, uh, Pat did too in a yeah. funny way. And uh, the answer Pat gave was not much. Because what we're proposing, even at an unreachable level, is all pain and no gain. And so we have to rethink if we have policies of carbon reduction, 
that will not impact climate even if you believe the models, and the models are questionable as to whether they're believable at all, what in the world are we doing? Well, me, what we're doing... Let me, let me go back... <clears throat> Let me go back to um, Roger Pilkey's iron law, if I could, just okay, briefly. Just for a that the, uh, the driver uh, for ultimate decisions will be economic, not uh, altruistic, oh, let's uh, make, I just came out of the green room, but let's make the earth greener. And what if, uh, let's say, China decides and uh, does an analysis and sees that uh, the great increase that they've made in coal-fired uh, plants and the emissions are having a greater economic impact on their economy because of the health costs of, uh, of, uh, of this uh, aerosols that they're putting out because of coal fire. And they say, we're going to clean our air. We're going to reduce the emissions of uh, cancer-causing aerosols, which, and we're going to spend uh, a good part of our gross national product, but we're going to maintain our power. So there we are, back to cleaner air but with, uh, with increasing amounts of carbon dioxide and reduced aerosols. So then maybe uh, what do we end up with in uh, 40 or 50 years? It's an economic decision. Those are, again, wild cards. No one knows. But the uh, brown cloud that is over China, I think uh, most many climate scientists agree, is having, uh, tends to have a cooling in influence, the low-level clouds, the aerosols. Actually, the brown one doesn't. It's the sulfates that do. The sulfates. But... But what happens if China says economically it makes more sense to clean our air now? Uh, that, uh, you know, how shall I put it? Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Uh, as the aerosol community, and I think Schwarzroda and so on are basically that community, point out, it's not a big effect. That is not, I mean, you know, how shall I put it? If you have a model that says we should have warmed three degrees by now, then for them the aerosols have to be a very big effect. The aerosol community never liked that. And then you have the models that only double it. They can use a smaller value for the aerosols. It's still at the upper end of what the aerosol community thought. So this is getting a little tenuous. But at the end of the day, uh, if China wants to clean its air, uh, that's probably a net plus for them. And uh, the effect on cooling, I think, you know, you are always taking a chance, but I think there are plenty of other good reasons for assuming the sensitivity is small. Yeah, I think there are. We uh, do need to go to the audience questions. Uh, I will say that, that the aerosol issue is an, a very odd one, and those people in the audience who are familiar with Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions should note that the aerosol cooling only came in when it was realized that left to their own devices, the models were predicting twice as much warming as was being observed. And the aerosol is a perfectly tunable parameter. You can put it in for pretty much whatever you want, and therefore you can erroneously solve the problem. new things every day. Yeah, well, they sure didn't know much back then. I'd like to point out that the, the uh, people in the audience who contributed to the book, Roger Pallon contributed the first chapter on the executive state and how it got to... Um, ceding the powers of the legislature to the executive and the courts, which is really the mechanism that is allowing global warming to permeate our society. It's a terrific chapter. Um, Neil McCluskey wrote a chapter on education, K-12 education, uh, showing the distortions that are involved in the system there. Ivan Eland wrote the chapter that uh, Dick liked so much on the defense, uh, uh, the in 
infiltration of the defense industry and global warming policy. And I don't see any of the other Cato authors here. Um, if you're not, you're not here. Okay, so we'll go to audience Q&A right now for a few minutes. Uh, and there will be a person with a microphone. You are Craig Olson from the State Department. Retired State Department. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted a clarification for you, Mr. Michaels. Um, do I understand, I, I've not read your book, I will, but so maybe the answer is in your book, but do I understand that you are saying that yes, there is a little bit of global warming, yes, there is a, a man-made factor in it, but that it's not enough to worry about. Is that, is that a fair statement? I don't think it's the end of the world, and I don't think you could stop it if you wanted to. But I mean, the first, so that, that, the first the answer is yes. There's some global warming. A, a portion of it is caused by people. Yes. It's at the low end of what's being projected by the range of models, meaning the sensitivity in the models is probably too high, and Dick agrees with that. And you couldn't stop it if you wanted to. So why can't we go on to something real? And well, next time I'll tell you what I think. And the consequences, are, and the consequences of, of, of not stopping it are not, not, not stupendous. Well, we warmed up seven-tenths of a degree Celsius in the 20th century. Life expectancy doubled and crop yields quintupled. But aside from that, it caused a lot of problems. Um, we should go to the back there uh, in the red scarf. I have a question actually for Dr. Linson. Um, well, you basically said that the correlation between temperature and greenhouse gases uh, has no sense. So I would like to know hold it, whether hold it. the correlation between temperature and greenhouse gases doesn't make sense. And I would like to understand exactly what you meant with that. I'm not sure I said exactly that. Yeah. Uh, the, if you look at the temperature record, the increase in temperature suggests with the card, wild card of uh, aerosols that there isn't much sensitivity. Uh, the temperature has gone up and down. The time scale for these changes is not so different from 50, 60 years. So this is a relatively short record. Uh, to the null hypothesis that CO2 or greenhouse gases don't play a role uh, is hard to reject with this kind of record. It's about the level, if you look at it appropriately, of asking what are the odds if you flip a coin three times that you got two heads in a row? Um, they're pretty high. And are you going to call that a trend? Well, when you say that temperature change hasn't changed much in the 50, 60 year time. Yeah, we're talking about less than a degree centigrade. It is about one degree in the last 100 years. Less than that. It's usually put at 0.7 because of the oscillation and so on. The usual statement from the IPCC is 0.7. And this actually leads me to the second question. Uh, you said that this change is small. Can you define small? Yeah, sure. Uh, within the range of normal variability, so if you look at the interannual fluctuations, fluctuations on much shorter timescales, it's always changing this much. If you look at the changes induced by known geophysical phenomena like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the Atlantic Multidecadal, they have similar magnitudes. It's small compared, in a sense, to the error bar. If you took three times the standard deviation, 
as Bob's picture showed, for much of this record, you're, you're at a point where you couldn't tell if you even had that much net warming. Paleoclimatic record has a time resolution that can't resolve the period we're talking about now. Well, if you go back to only 20,000 years, it's true they can resolve things like 50 years. If you go back to the Vostok core, the resolution probably isn't much better than 500 to 1,000 years. We're talking about climate change over 150 years with paleo records for which this is a spec. Uh, no, we'll go let somebody else get it if you don't mind. Can I make one point? Uh, sure, Bob. Sorry, just a, a brief point. And I, I, when we focus on the that global warming, I think it's important that we really do also consider global change. And uh, Roger Pilkey Sr. has written about land use, the influence of various things, the ocean, ocean acidification, the footprints are not just uh, global warming, and not and we can't and and the debate is that the high is this the hottest year ever? Is this the hottest month? Is is trivial? Is is silly? And uh, and uh, and uh, unfortunately, is uh, science by uh, by press release. But the longer term trends and the footprints that uh, as we as I showed in the high latitude, uh, greater anomalies, which were predicted uh, by Warren Washington and others uh, in the, even the crudest models. The receding alpine glaciers, the ocean acidification, many, many other things are showing that indeed there is a human footprint. Whether oh. it is a the a cat catastrophe, alarmism, oh. I think again is uh, uh, I don't walk down to anybody in the street when I go out and talk to people and say uh, I should be alarmed. Are you? Aren't you alarmed? What's happening right. to the world? No, and, and that, that question yeah. has never come no. up. No. Okay. Fair enough. But you're engaging in what sometimes is called, there's a Latin name, but I prefer the prosecutor's fallacy. Uh, you're taking phenomena, first of all, with the models and the Arctic amplification. Um, one of the curious things, there was a paper by Lee Suarez held and someone else uh, comparing models. And, and these were among the better modelers at Princeton and so on. And they noted that polar amplification was actually not a robust property of the models. It's very much related to how they handled the albedo and clouds. And it's also a function of something numerical, namely to prevent instability in the models, numerical instability, they smooth. So it's a fishy issue in a way. But let's take the Arctic for a moment without the models. Uh, you have a situation where we have about 30 years of decent data. During that period, it has been argued that there was, at first, a slow reduction in summer ice coverage, and then a significantly greater drop in 2007, and then modest recovery since then. Now, 
we do know something about the ice. First of all, taking a percentage from summer makes it look much larger than doing it for the year, because every year, two-thirds of the ice disappears in summer. Second, we have long known the major factors in this are the wind regime in the summer, how much ice gets blown into the Labrador Sea. And also, we know that the winters in the Arctic are extremely erratic. A warm year is when three cyclones, polar lows, penetrate. Uh, a cold year is when only two. So you take that. There are all these factors involved. And then you say it went down, and that tells us that it's due to greenhouse warming, and the warming was due to greenhouse gases, and the greenhouse gases were due to man. Huh? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, it's like, you know, the prosecutor's fallacy is usually put, if A shot B, there's a certainty A has gunpowder on his hands. If C has gunpowder in his hands, is it an absolute certainty he shot A or B? No. <laughs> on the other hand, do the, any of the observations uh, uh, contradict or tend to confirm some of the very early crude models? I don't think they contradict the... Oh, yeah, they do, unless you put in a fudge, fa fudge factor. I don't know that Warren put in fudge factor. Oh, yes, he did. I worked with him. <laughs> uh, over here in the... Uh, that row, yeah. Plaid shirt. Give him a mic, please. Let's see. I'm, I'm, um, I'm curious as to where, 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 when, and how the term climate change became the accepted way of talking about global warming. I, <laughs> I sort of, I sort of understand what global warming means, but I don't understand really. And I don't. I never saw it in the IPCC report of what climate change means. It's when, per se. It's when global warming was not effective enough. It was another try, and now it's climate disruption. Okay. Uh, where where was the last headline uh, of climate disruption? Boy, that's that one. There, though they tried to push that one about beginning about a year ago, and John it got nowhere. Holdren was Holdren. publicly recommending that we stop talking yeah. about warming or change, but disruption. <laughs> We'll go cherry-picking in the summertime. <laughs> oh, John Holdren's very important, as the science well, yeah. are. Well, yes, uh, I, I take that. Myron? I'd like to ask, uh, in order to resist the trends that you, I think, quite rightly see in your book, uh, it's going to take some positive action by Congress. And I, I was wondering, uh, to, to undo some of these things, and I it seems that we have such a level of um, miseducation and ignorance in Congress. I want, and it, it, maybe I should say something about that. I ran into a, a member of Congress who's a, a, one of the leading and most articulate and, and well-informed skeptics the night the Upton um, EPA preemption bill was passed. And he said he was in an elevator with six other members of Congress, all of whom in the Rayburn building, all of whom had voted against it. And he said, well, how much CO2 do you think is in the atmosphere? The, the first member who replied said 60%. <laughs> then another one said, no, I think it's only 20%. And then a couple of others said 10%. Now, with that level of understanding of the people who are supporting global warming alarmism and the, the infiltration of these policies into our government, how, what hope do we have? How do we go about improving this situation? 
the lack of science literacy in uh, the elected officials is not restricted to the issue of global warming and how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. Any more than an understanding of world history is a requirement for election uh, to a higher office. But, Myron, I, I think there is some answer. I mean, if you took that degree of ignorance and said, well, what's the hope? Uh, it would sound grim. But in fact, we have had other interests that have pushed things one way or the other. Congress, in some ways, is representative of the distortions and so on in the understanding. Nevertheless, they don't want to take risks that will jeopardize their election. And that has meant that uh, the fact that the population hasn't been swayed by this has just as much influence on them. It's a little bit like lawyers, I find. I, I, it always astonished me that a good litigator claims he doesn't need to know what he's litigating. And yet there's some truth to that. He has to know litigation. The substance is irrelevant. In this particular case, the politics is pretty clear. Uh, doing this is not popular. It's going to be costly. And uh, although there are many groups that see how they'll profit, it's not altogether clear that they have bribed the politicians enough. I mean, clearly with Enron, uh, with Lehman Brothers, they understood there were billions and perhaps trillions at stake. They were motivated. But I don't think the same is true for the government per se. I think there is a solution, by the way, for the science end of it. There has to be a return to the tradition of non-government support of science. Uh, you can't very well have the National Science Foundation spending tens of millions of dollars for social scientists to figure out how to convince the public that there is a danger and still claim you're an object, supporting objective science elsewhere. That's getting too touchy. We're going to go on to one more question. I will say that I, I called for that, Dick, in the book uh, Meltdown. And when my three-year review came around and there was no letter that came back, at, they said that, well, they were concerned about what I wrote in the book. And it was that I wrote that science should be the funding basis for science should be diversified. <laughs> uh, the Roger, Roger Pallon uh, wrote a wonderful, wonderful chapter. If you read the book and you don't want to read the whole thing, just read Pallon's chapter. It's really good. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction, Pat. Um, I just want to pick up on this last point that uh, Professor Lindzen uh, made. The politics is costly indeed. And that's, of course, why it has shifted over to the administrative branch, because that's where the non-responsible government officials can carry out the global warming agenda uh, at no cost to the politicians. Meanwhile, the politicians can call them before their committees and criticize them for what they're doing, uh, therefore satisfying the um, constituency that uh, they are looking out for their interests. But I want to shift the discussion over just a bit, because one of the issues that really hasn't come up yet, and it's because you're scientists and not economists or, 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 or policy people in the, in the strict sense of the word. Uh, the point that uh, Pat made in the response to the first question was that e even if all of this were the case, there's not much we can do 
to address global warming. Uh, but there is a lot we can try to do to do it, and it's extraordinarily costly. And it seems to me that one of the issues that repeatedly is repressed by the global warming zealots, if I may use that term, is the extraordinarily cost, the extraordinary cost to poor people around the world. I mean, if we were to implement what is being called for uh, by many of these zealots, it would reduce the standard of living around the world to such a level that we would be, in effect, back in the dark ages. And uh, it seems to me this is something that gets far too little attention, and I wonder if any of the speakers here would want to address that issue. This is a long, there's a long history of that. I mean, remember, the first third of the 20th century, the counterpart of environmentalism was eugenics. And it was regarded as a moral superiority issue. The people supporting it, George Bernard Shaw, Margaret Sanger, and so on, Theodore Roosevelt, all felt it was a sign of their moral superiority. Uh, it became clear that this was immoral. A lot of these issues have their appeal to people because they are a vehicle for demonstrating moral superiority at no cost, and yet underneath it is a horrible immorality. And I think eventually that will become clear of this issue as well. Hopefully it will not go that far. But already in Africa with the World Bank, they're rejecting applications on greenhouse spaces for powering hospitals, things like that. So the seeds of the immorality on this issue are quite clear. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you justify issues where you're proposing to gain nothing, no matter what you believe, at high cost. And I still haven't seen that faced up to. I mean, this is the issue. What if we are wrong? If we are wrong, uh, we're doomed. It doesn't matter what policy. No, no, I think only uh, people like Bangladesh are doomed. Well, I'm saying regardless and, but of those, that. No, those are the questions that come up. And, and ultimately, you do have, don't you have some, don't, uh, this, doesn't the scientific community have some moral responsibility if they really believe in uh, and passionately well, believe in their results to then uh, take look, some positions? Let's look at Bangladesh, because it's an interesting case. Bangladesh, for the last 10 years, has actually had a very rapid growth in GDP. It's no longer the basket case of South Asia. It is much better suited now for dealing with any catastrophe than it was 10 years ago. Uh, you know, in a certain sense, there's a moral component to economics trumping this because it leaves you more robust. And Bangladesh today is no longer the simple example one can always give for the basket case. We'll have to look elsewhere for basket cases. And that's a good thing for the world. Well, until the next cyclone comes. Well, uh, if you take a look at Bangladesh, they have had severe cyclones resembling those that occurred 30 years ago that killed 250,000 people. Right. Now they and kill 2,000. Right. That's quite a difference. And that's, that's, that's development and resilience. You care about global warming, you're for economic development. And on that note, I'll end this, I'll end this forum because we're running a little bit behind, sir. Okay. Upstairs, uh, yeah.